Blake should be very concerned this morning. This is going to be a serious lesson, and it's not because of the lesson that he should be concerned, but the reason I wanted him to read Luke was because of the contrast with Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. He pointed that out without me even saying that, which means his thoughts are running parallel to mine, and that's a frightening thought for him. <laughs> but what I want to talk about this morning is, is very uncomfortable and very disturbing, and as it said of Paul when he was in Athens, it provoked my spirit, because it's very deep thinking. It called into my heart every bit of my being and every bit of my belief and everything that I have claimed that I believe in. And the title of the lesson is Jesus Taught Gehenna. And Gehenna is the Greek word for hell. And Jesus taught hell. And for me to stand up here and say, I believe in hell and God is going to punish people who don't abide in his word and in his life, it calls into account everything that I have to think about. It's a very, very, very difficult lesson. It calls into account all of my friends, all of my loved ones, and myself. And I have to take these things seriously, and I have to believe them fully. And when I stand up here and say them, I'm going to be called into account for everything that I say. I'm trying to emphasize not just Jesus' teaching, but how it relates to people and how it relates to others. And when I think about these things, it gets very, very, very deep. My comments are mostly to believers, but the iniquitous and the agnostic, those who have come to realize that they are bruised or confused by what goes on in their lives, will be looking for these truths, and we need to be able to present these truths. The idea that we judge not, but we judge with righteousness is called into account here. The standard by which we judge is what really grabs onto me because the idea that I do have to judge with a very high standard, when I call my brothers and sisters to a high standard, that's the standard that I'm going to be judged by. And that is a critical thought. It is very, very daunting. But. I'm not talking about faith or salvation by works, but by grace. That we are saved by a righteousness, not of our own, but a righteousness through faith that is imparted through Jesus Christ. But we are called to a very, very, very high standard. Take up your cross and follow me. He who puts his hand to the plow and turns back is not worthy of me. Count the cost. Know the warfare that you're going into. Know the cost of the tower that you're going to build. We're called to be a holy, a separate, a set-apart priesthood for God. And what I want to look at this morning is, what does the Bible in the New Testament say about hell? And is it real? I want to look at the idea that Luke does not mention this teaching at all in his account of the Sermon on the Plain or the Sermon on the Mount. No matter which way you look at that, whether it's one sermon delivered in two different accounts or whether it's two sermons delivered separately or whether it's just analogous teachings of Jesus, the fact of the matter is Luke didn't mention this teaching on hell at all. And finally, I want to share some thoughts on the worldviews and why that makes this difficult teaching. And if you're not familiar with the concept of a worldview, 
It's simply the way that we perceive the world around us. And Christianity is a worldview religion. As we are called to be completely given to Christ, it encompasses all of our views of all the things that happen in the world around us. And we have to bring those into account with how we believe about Jesus Christ and how we will seek His salvation. Salvation is at the heart of what we do. It implies that we are saved from something. And we're saved from sin. It's salvation from sin. And the wages of sin are death. So we are saved from sin and death. We're not saved from the discomforts of this world. Although that is an important part of our salvation, it's going to be something that we all look forward to. No more tears, no more pain, no more anguish, no more anger. We'll be saved from these things, but that's not the main point. The main point is we're saved from sin and death. We're given eternal life. So the question is, is hell real? Jesus thought so. Ten of the eleven times the word Gehenna is used, it's used by Jesus. And the eleventh time it's used by James in his book that is very, very similar to the Sermon on the Mount in intent. And that's the eleventh use of it. The idea of his parables, the net, the dragnet, the good and the bad fish are separated. The virgins, ten virgins, five cast out and five saved. Of course, the sheep and the goats. Jesus taught Gehenna. Matthew 5, verses 21 through 30. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering and go before the altar, and go first to be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law, while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid the last cent. You have heard the, that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks on a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in her heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into the fiery hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus taught Gehenna. Jesus taught hell. Why don't we like it? Why is it odious to us? Odious is deserving hate, repugnant. My friend and teacher, Dory Moyer, says, I don't like teaching hell. And he means it. He's a, he's a great apologist, but he doesn't like teaching it. And I don't like teaching it either, because it is, it is repugnant to us. But if the thought of being cast into hell was as repugnant as the thought of teaching hell is to us, we would have no problem teaching it, teaching it clearly and teaching it often and teaching it to all of the world who, for the most part, is doomed to be there. God made us merciful and passionate. 
And we turn that back on him. We say to him, God, you are merciful and compassionate. You are kind and loving. You cannot throw people to hell. We think we're compassionate, but we think wrongly. Sin is treason. Treason against the king of the universe. And the death penalty has been, up until modern times, the penalty for treason. The things that rightly belong to God cannot be given to man, for we are incompetent to judge rightly. We do not have to do wrong. We merely have to think wrongly. So why is it so difficult? Fiery judgment, it was the language of the first century. Joel, revelation, fire and smoke, vapor, stars being knocked out of the sky. This was the language of the first centuries. This was the language that Jesus taught in. This is the language that the New and the Old Testament was written in. From Matthew to Revelation, it begins within and ends with fiery judgment. We've changed, but not the teaching. I'll grant that it's a figure of speech. Fiery judgment's a figure of speech, but separation from God is worse than fiery judgment. Darkness, total darkness, because God is light. God is good. Anything that is good will not be there in separation from God. And that's what hell is, separation from God, even if fiery judgment is figurative. But the language of today it's distortion and disparagement. We don't accept arguments on argument's sake. We try to make the argument as bad as possible. We try to disparage the arguer. That's the language of the 21st century. It's emotional. It's anger. It's, I want to destroy these people's argument logically. But we need to get past that. We need to look for the emotional part of it. We need to listen for that heart. We need to find out how to get past that anger and get to the understanding and communicate in today's language to people who do have distortion and disparagement in their heart and towards other people. If we can get to that, then we can teach the gospel. We live in a day and age of lawlessness. There is no absolute truth. The age of reason is gone. That was called modernism. We are living in the postmodern age. I'm okay, you're okay. Truth comes from within. I get to decide what my truth is. Absolute truth doesn't exist in real life. That's a mathematical principle. We live day to day in a different world than mathematics. So we get to live and choose what truth we want to have. Narcissism, the belief in self, the love of self, is the idea of the day. Everybody is exceptional, exceptional and deserving. But with all this going on, there's still an idea of community. That perhaps there's nothing left because we've left God and the eternal life behind. That all that is left is the earth and our community. But if we can present to people who are narcissistic but yet think 
my community, my community needs to be saved. If we can get to these people and talk about community and our community and our communion with God and Christ, then we can reach to them. Perhaps because all truth want, comes from within, they want to see us live the life that we claim to believe in. They want to see the heart come out in our actions. So let this, let this show through. Let our heart be what we live and let it be seen. And then we can reach the people who are involved and totally involved in themselves. We live in a day and age of godlessness. We've lost sight of God's word. John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify means to set apart, to make a unity separate from the world. And sanctify them in your word. Unity is mentioned in every letter to every church in the New Testament. There's some call to be unified. And we can know that we must be unified in his word because of what Jesus tells his apostles in John 17, 17. We can understand the Bible. We must be able to understand the Bible. If we can't, it's because God did not want us to or he was unwilling to let us understand it. We can understand the Bible. And the first thing that we need to know is it is literature, and I know many of you have heard me say this before, but it's literature. Yes, once you say it's literature from God, it takes on a completely different meaning in the eyes of most of the world. But being literature, being a book, it is a form of understanding. Laws and language are plain. They've been used since the man was put on this earth for us to communicate with each other, and it's literature. We can interpret it, and the two definitions of interpretation are to explain in an understandable way, it can be understood, or to explain according to judgment, circumstance, or belief. And now if we explain the Bible according to judgment, then we have judged what it says and have explained it according to our judgment. If we explain it according to circumstance, then we take what it says and take our circumstance and apply that to the Bible, not the other way around as it should be, that we apply the Bible to our circumstance. So we have taken and changed the word according to the situation that we're standing in, or if we explain it, interpret it according to our belief, then we've read back in to the Bible what we already thought, and therefore we are not understanding it. We are using our beliefs to present what it says. So the Bible, it's not about the ability to understand it. It says what it says, and it's easy to figure that out. The question becomes a matter of authority. What is the, whose opinion is valid about what the Bible says? That we live in an age of godlessness. We don't understand God's justice X number of cases prosecuted plus Y amount of public safety 
equals criminal justice. This is not a good formula. Any system that does not include vindication for the oppressed and a lesson for the oppressor is not according to God's way. Yes, the wages of sin are death, and the government wields the sword for a reason. And punishment is deserved at times. But what I am saying is, we and the world do not understand God's justice, and it shows in our societal systems. And finally, we have lost sight of God's goodness. We are mostly good people. How can God send good people to hell? First and foremost, God is righteous. We are incompetent to judge rightly. We don't know His ways. His ways are farther above us than we can understand. Does the potter get told by the clay, you've made me wrong? What God has made, God made. He was the creator. He governs all of the operating systems and it operates according to Him. God doesn't make the law. He is the law. What God has made holy, man cannot use to impart holiness. The idea from Habakkuk chapter 2. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Now ask the priest for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and it touches bread with this fold, or cooked wine, or oil, or any food, will it become holy? And the priest answered, No. Then Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these things, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, It will. And then Haggai said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. The idea, man can only be made holy by God. An unclean man contaminates all that he touches. And sin will be removed according to God. And man cannot have what is rightfully God's. It's the law of sin and death. It's not vindictive or partial. It's not unfair. It's just the same as the law of nature. God is holy. He is set apart from us. He cannot have sin within Him or He ceases to be God. God is pure. Any impurity destroys Him. He cannot have it in Him, but He can cleanse it. I'm a small man. I'm small in stature to most men. I'm a good three to four inches lower than the average. I live on a small planet by comparison to the planets we've seen through our wonderful telescopes. I live in a small galaxy compared to the galaxies that we've measured out in space. Very, very tiny man on a tiny planet. But do we compare God's goodness and God's purity in the same perspective? We can imagine, perhaps, a God bigger than the universe, 
But do we imagine a God so pure that the comparison pales? The same way the comparison of the universe pales to just one individual. That is the purity of God that we're looking at in comparison with the iniquity of man. Can you see how far away we are from this when we think we're in control? God doesn't set the standard. He is the standard. Be holy as I am holy. So if the teaching of hell is so important, why does Luke leave it out completely? No matter which view of the Sermon on the Plain you take, it's not there. The rest of it is. Luke chapter 6 is Matthew chapter 5 on either side of the teaching of Gehenna. Luke chapters 11, 12, and 13 are chapters 6 and 7 of the Sermon on the Mount. It's all in there except for that one little bit of teaching. I'm going to suggest two reasons. First of all, Luke talked to the Gentiles. He taught to the Gentiles. This argument that Jesus gives, he says, you have heard it said. It was a pharisaical argument. When he talks about the scripture, he says, it is written. So a pharisaical argument to the Gentiles would be like a marital spat in Kansas City. We might have an interest in it, but it's not going to resonate with us. He talked to the Gentiles about things that would resonate with them. I think that's part of the reason that he leaves it out. But he also taught history. He taught through history. The same way that John says, I've shown you these miracles by writing them down so that you will believe in the Christ and have eternal life. Luke is saying, I'm going to show you this history so that you will know the truth. So he's teaching the same thing that John taught, only one's using history, one's using miracles. So he's, he uses the ideas of Jesus interacting with the Pharisees and tells that in a story. You see what Jesus taught. As he tells the story of Paul going out and teaching to the churches in Asia or to the Jews in Asia, Asia Minor, you see how and what Paul taught. Look at Acts 17 or Acts 24. And you see in Acts 17 when he goes into Athens and he talks to the Athenians. He says, men, I know of your poets. And they said things similar to this. But God has appointed a day in which he's going to judge all of mankind through the one he raised from the dead. So he gets a common source with them. And then in Acts 24, when he's in prison and Felix comes to him, and Felix called for him often is what it said. He had apparently had something to say to Felix that Felix wanted to listen to, in addition to the fact that he wanted money from him. But perhaps Paul even led Felix on, and perhaps next time I'll have something more to say to you, or I'll have something more for you. And Felix would think, ah, money. But of course, Paul, again, was going to teach what he taught to Felix. Righteousness self-control, and the judgment to come. And the judgment to come is just the euphemism for Gehenna hell. That's what we're talking about. Judgment is salvation from something and condemnation to something. And Luke taught these things through history, and Paul's letters confirm what he taught. 
More than 80 times he uses terms like perish, destroy, wrath, judgment, and death. Not physical death, but eternal death. More than 80 times, more than he talks about mercy and forgiveness and heaven itself. But Luke knew hell. He knew the teaching of Gehenna. In Matthew 28, excuse me, 10, 28, the exact teaching, fear the one who can cast both body and soul into hell, is exactly what Luke says in Luke chapter 12 and verse 5. He knew the story of the goats and the sheep, but he didn't put that one in there either. Luke doesn't mention that. Perhaps there was something about Jewish-Christian relationships or sacrifice that wouldn't have resonated with the Gentiles, and that's why Luke left that out. I don't know, but I do know he taught with a purpose, and his purpose was to reach to his audience. When the Jews were talked to, they were seeking a sign. You have the law. You have the understanding. Use it. You've been given this sign. Incorporate it. The Greeks wanted wisdom. You have understanding. Here are the facts. Put them together. But Matthew 5 informs us of Matthew 25. It sheds some light on it. Matthew 25 says, You didn't visit me in prison. You didn't clothe me. Depart from me. Matthew 5 says, he brings it to the thoughts. If you even think these things or don't think these things, then you're liable for eternal consequences of the personal relationships that we have, even through our thoughts. The same idea is presented in Matthew... Seven. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out many demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And Luke uses the same parable of the two foundations when he tells the same story. So Luke knew these teachings. And Matthew just expounds on them further. Stumbling Second Corinthians ten five tells us we are destroying speculations, every lofty thing brought against the knowledge of God, and bringing every thought into subjection to Christ. Back to the idea of we do not have to do things wrong, only to merely think wrong. But there are things that are in opposition to the knowledge 
of God that we need to be considering. Stumbling is mentioned often, mostly causing ourselves to stumble, but the scripture let him be, it'd be better for him to have a millstone around his neck and to be cast into the sea than to cause one of my little ones to stumble or for us to listen to others who are not teaching the whole counsel of God. Don't be deceived. Hypocrisy causes others to stumble. I don't want to go to church because they don't live the life that they're supposed to live. And hypocrisy is lying to oneself anyway. And how hard is God on liars? In denial, both Matthew and Luke fear the one who can cast the body and the soul into hell. If you deny me, I will deny you. Luke says before angels. Matthew says before men. But if you confess him, confess Christ before me, I will confess you before the men and the angels. Demands submission and faith, a loyalty to God's nature. Matthew 23, the final use of the word hell that we're going to look at this morning. God's giving the lecture that we mentioned in class this morning to the Pharisees. Woe be to you. He calls them out in several different ways to know the value of God versus the value of gold or cleanliness of the inside and the outside of the cup. But what is more, I want to make a point about Gehenna. The idea is the trash dump. It's the, where they burnt the trash outside of Jerusalem. There's no evidence for that until the 12th century AD. And then people take that and move with it and say, this is what it meant. There's no, there's no archaeological evidence that there was a trash dump in the Hinnom Valley. That's where the Jews sacrificed their children to the god Molech. And I'll ask you, which is worse? A trash dump or sacrificing your children in a fire to the false gods? And that's what the point of hell is. It's horrible. It's separation from God, as I said earlier. That's where God turned his back on the Israelites and demanded that they go into captivity and punishment. Matthew chapter 10. Picking up in verse... 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor the slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he may become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the household Beelzebub, how much more will they malign you? Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed, and nothing hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim from the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body and the soul. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? 
and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but the very head of your hair are numbered. So do not fear, you are more valuable than many, many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. There's great consolation in what we hope for versus what we dread. Denial is simply not being proud of Christ and too timid to proclaim. Not trusting. He is a good God. He's not wanting to destroy us. He's not wanting to crush us. He only wants what is good for us. And he knows that sin, both in this life and the next, are not good for us. Hebrews 27, 9-27 and 2 Corinthians 5-10 both tell us we're appointed to die and then comes a judgment, a sentence for our actions, whether good or bad. And Peter tells us that baptism will wash away our sins. It is an appeal for a clear conscience. If your sin has separated you from God, it's separated you from eternal life. God is life. God is eternal life. If you are separated, think deeply on these things. And let's stand and sing a song of encouragement. 722.